Stand with me in the honor of reading God's word. If you don't have your copy of God's word, it'll be on the screen behind me. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So I've been loving the book of Hebrews. I don't know about you as we've just journeyed now. This is message four. Um, But almost any preaching book, uh, the the book of Hebrews is, is a sermon, okay? Like, it, it, it was a sermon. It's, it's, you say, well, technically it's a letter, right, that was read in French. Yes, it was a letter, but it was read in a format much like what we're talking about here or the way that I communicate here in terms of a, a sermon. But it was, it was read as a letter that would have been uh, to teach people. And if you read anything about preaching or teaching, um, almost every preaching book will say this about a preacher or communicator, that when you preach God's word, you should do two things. You should comfort the afflicted, and you should afflict the comfortable. So comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And so even as we've journeyed through Hebrews, the, the, the rhythm and the cadence that we have seen even now after a chapter and kind of getting into halfway through, through chapter two, we have seen that kind of rhythm, right? Hebrews chapter one starts with what? This incredible picture of who Jesus is, right? Sets up the whole theme and premise of the entire book going this, Jesus is better, Jesus is greater. He's greater than than the prophets of old, as incredible as they were, and as as much as God used them, he is better than anything in this world. Then he pivots to like angels. And he goes, Jesus is better and greater than angels, right? And so it's this this comfort. It's this, for especially this church of Jewish believers, probably in or around Rome, kind of this storm-tossed little church. Like, they needed that comfort because they were facing some serious affliction and persecution, as Hebrews alludes to. And so, then we get into Hebrews chapter 2, last week, right? And what was it about? It was a little bit less on the, the, the comfort. The, it was more on, like, affliction, right? Like, bringing some affliction to us, going, listen, do not neglect the great salvation that has come in the Jesus that was just talked about in Hebrews chapter 1. Remember that? And so it was this warning against spiritual drift. Like, do not drift away spiritually. Do not lose hope in the anchor of your soul, Hebrews 6, Jesus Christ. Because that is our tendency. Our tendency is to be a people who drift away from the hope in Christ that we have. And so we talk through some of those warnings, right? And, it, and I hope, I pray, it was helpful for you to recognize some of those warning lights that flash, Right? And it was kind of like an affliction for those of us who tend to be comfortable. When are we most likely to drift? Let's be honest. It's not when we're in trials or tribulation or suffering. We're most likely to drift in our lives when we're what? Comfortable. That's right. Complacent. 
right, just kind of going through the motions, checking the boxes, that's when we begin to drift away from Christ and the things of Christ. And so then today, we get to this little passage here, and it's actually a very complex passage to unpack, and so I'm, I'm going to do my best to, to, to do that with it. It's a little bit of both. It's, a, it's, 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 it's comfort and affliction, right? And I would say it's going to be affliction for, for, for those of you um, who, who really struggle with the idea of suffering or God's sovereignty, okay? And it's okay to be honest in church. You know that, right? So it's really good for you to be honest in church. And so we're going to walk through that, but it's really going to be comforting for those of you who are going through those waters of suffering and tragedy and hardship, okay? Um, I tend to be a destination guy. Anybody else here like a destination person? So like on vacation, like if you're going to the beach, like I just want to get to the beach, right? So you typically have destination people or journey people. And you know those journey people are just like, yeah, is this about the road travel to there? I'm like, no, it's about the beach and the sand beneath my feet. And the, like, I want to get there. Like, I don't care. Like, I just want to go, you know. Um, so my uh, youngest um, is, is, is now phasing out of diapers. Um, and I know everybody's like, yes, that's so awesome. You can save money. But on road trips, now I have one more voice in the car going, I got to go potty, all right? And so now I've implemented a diapers for all rule in our car uh, until we reach our destination. Um, but no, 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 like uh, the, the, I'm a destination guy, but I've learned, the Lord has, has been teaching me that the Bible does this incredible thing, and it's an incredible thing in our Christian life as well, that it's a both and, that it really is a both and, that the Bible will talk about how we live this life as Christians, but what it will also do beautifully is set on the horizon, the destination, the beauty of Christ the eternity that, that, that he promises for us. Like, it, it sets that on the horizon. Now, for somebody who's wired like me, for those of you who can understand this, I'm like, I f- want to fix my eyes on that and be like, let's go, right? And what happens is I miss a lot of things that the Holy Spirit is trying to do in shaping me, informing me along the way and in the journey. And so if we're not careful in Hebrews, because the theme is Jesus is greater, Jesus is better, we will think that Hebrews um, is missing this journey talk, if you will. This idea of how Jesus being better or Jesus being greater actually shapes and forms the Christian life and the day in and day out things that we face. And so what this little, these little five verses do is they put out for us the destination, he put out for us the destination, but they also, if, if, if we're not careful, we'll miss this. They also tell us how that destination, how that future hope in reality, um, how they shape, how it shapes our everyday living, particularly living when we face suffering and struggles and trials, okay? And so it's this both and, and I, I love the way that the writer of Hebrews does this. So we're, here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to go through four phrases in this section. And I love when the text just essentially makes the points for you. And those four phrases are found in verses 8 and 9. Because really they're the summation of what the author of Hebrews is writing in the other verses 5, 6, 7, and the the first part of 8. And so we're going to walk through these four verses. And so, yes, this whole passage is focused on Jesus like, like Hebrews is, but it's also focused on how we journey as whole life disciples, a phrase we use a lot around here at the Parks Church. And so I'm convinced, unless we get, or until we get a hold of these four verses, we actually can't faithfully journey as whole life disciples. And that's a big statement, and that's not overstated or exaggerated. We must get these four statements in our hearts and in our heads if we have any hope of journeying 
as whole life disciples. So let's look at these statements, right? And so let's go in verse 8. Right after he quotes Psalm 8, which I'm going to talk about here, this is what he says. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, here's the first phrase, he, meaning God, left nothing outside his control. Remember, we're talking about destination and journey. That in this life, there is absolutely nothing outside of the control of our God. That God the Father put under Jesus' feet absolutely everything. That Jesus, the Jesus from chapter 1, the Jesus from the beginning of chapter 2, is in charge of absolutely everything, and God has given him that authority. So there is no category and nothing outside of him and his control. And the reality is, as a Christian, as a disciple, you cannot live your life faithfully to Jesus unless you believe that phrase. Unless you come to terms with that phrase. Now, we've got to understand the point of quoting Psalm 8 here. So did you see in your Bible, like mine, once again, that he's quoting a a psalm. There's other verses there. He's quoting Psalm chapter 8, a portion of Psalm 8 there. Psalm 8 is, is talking about a future reality that we know as a current reality because of Christ. And Psalm 8 is all about the future control of Christ, about dominion and authority. But it's almost talked in a language where it feels like, wait a minute, is that for us? Is, is, that, is that about men and women? Well, let's think back. Dominion or control. All the way back to Genesis chapter 1. When God created, look at it in, in verses 26 through 28. Listen to the control language. And, and, and the word here is dominion, control. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion, there it is, or control, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Why? And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, dominion, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Genesis chapter 1, who had dominion, right, over everything on this earth? Who was, given, who was control given to? God gave it to male and female, right? Men and women. What happened? Right? This is first Adam. Adam number 1. Yeah, flip a few pages in your Bible. Genesis chapter 3. That dominion, that power, that control was what? Perverted. By sin. And, and here, here's what we often do. We're like, Adam, you messed it up for us. Adam and Eve, you messed it up for us. We would have done the same thing. Okay? You would have done the same thing. Why? Because our hearts are wicked. But what is taking place here is in, in Psalm chapter 8 to go, this was the original design. But our God, in his grace, here's what he did. He, sec- he sent a second Adam. And that second Adam is Jesus And Jesus faithfully fulfilled what the first Adam could not fulfill. And so therefore, because he faithfully fulfilled that, guess what? Genesis chapter 1 that was given to Adam, given to Eve, is now given over to Jesus. And what Hebrews chapter 2 is saying here is that he has control over everything because he faithfully fulfilled what God's design and plan was for the first Adam. And now we're going to talk about how in a little bit, 
how that also will be given, how Psalm 8 actually talks about that dominion and control being given back, right, through Christ. But let's first wrestle with this fact. He left nothing outside of his control. There's nothing outside of Jesus' control. Now, believing that is hard, intellectually. And maybe some of you actually get there maybe more easy than I do. But how about living in light of that? Believing it's one thing, but living in light of that reality is one of the greatest challenges, I think, in the Christian life. Truly believing that everything is under Jesus' control. Every category in your life, everything we see, everything we know, everything we feel, everything we experience is under his control. And the writer of Hebrews is aware of this. Because look at the next phrase that's so important. After the period, he left nothing out of his control. The second phrase is this. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection or under control to him. Do you feel that? Like at present, our current reality, what we see with our eyes, if you will, Like, we we just talked about a theological concept. We just talked about something that we have to have constructed in our minds, believe it in our hearts. But what about our eyes? What about the world and the culture that we live in, right? The the, the deteriorating frameworks, the the, the sin that plagues us, right? These things that are are demonic before us. The things that are are ripping us apart. Maybe that's individually, maybe that's culturally, maybe that's corporate. I I don't know. But think about those things because you go, listen, are those things that I see and observe under his control? Because at this present age, I don't see it. I don't see it with my eyes, even my family. The unhappiness, the lack of joy, the lack of belief in Jesus, the rebellion broken friendships, the things that I mostly see with my eyes, I'd observe as something that's outside of his control, in my thought. But remember point number one, everything. Call this brokenness, this pain, this struggle, these things that we can identify with our eyes, everything is under his control. You see, above all else, what the writer of Hebrews wants you and me to see is Jesus. Remember that. Jesus, that Jesus is at the center of the message of the gospel, that Jesus is not some, you know, spiritual man just giving you tips on how to live a better life. Jesus himself is the point and the center of the gospel, and the Father has given him authority over everything. Now, that should cause you some tension. It should cause you some tension because what you view with your eyes is different than what you feel in your heart. And that is meant to set you and I up for the last two statements. The first statement, everything is under Jesus' control. The next statement, a very true, a very real statement, but what we see with our eyes in this present age is not everything under his control. But wait, everything's under his control. Oh yeah, it is. Why? How do we know that? The next two statements. Let's look at it. But we see him, okay? That word but in verse nine, you should probably underline that. Because the author of Hebrews was very honest there, going, with our eyes in this present age, we don't see his control. Um, Just because, I want to state this carefully so I don't get an email or like blasted as a heretic. Um, Just because the Bible states something like, but in this present age, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Just because the Bible says that doesn't mean 
that the things are not in control by him. I'm trying to read some faces, like to make sure that that landed, right? The first statement is true. Everything's under his control. The next statement is an honest statement to go, when I look out, it doesn't look like that. But the reality is what the first statement is true. And how do we know that first statement is true? The last two statements here. But, but, think about this. This is the confidence we stand on to know that everything is under Jesus' control in our lives and in this world. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, okay? So now it's going, here's what I want you to fix your eyes on, the incarnation of Christ, his coming, him literally putting on flesh as a man. You're saying now, him situated lower than angels, you just said he was in control of everything. Listen, when Jesus came incarnate, put on flesh, right, became 100% man for our sin, he was situated or seated below the angels only for that moment in that time here, okay? That's what the Bible says. That's what Paul would say in his Corinthian letters as well. However, keep reading. He is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and of death. That's the third statement. How do we know that Jesus is in absolute control and authority of everything? Because God put him there. But how did God put him there? By suffering death. And that through suffering and death, he was crowned with glory and honor. So the translation in our Bibles, at least the translations we use in the ESV, says because of the suffering of death, that should actually be a little bit more concise, that he was crowned with glory and honor by suffering death. So get this, that Jesus is in control over everything. He was crowned with glory and honor because he was king, because he was powerful, because he had the best leadership acumen in the world. No, he was crowned with glory and honor by suffering death. That seems like the direct opposite of how people come into power and glory and honor. By dying? You see, this is the paradox with Jesus. This is that upside-down kingdom. This is, this is how we see the gospel as something totally different than any other thing or offering in the world, any other religion, any other world religion. This is why the gospel is unique. You see, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that God bestowed glory and honor on Jesus by his suffering and death. And I want you, listen to me, this is where you need to listen very carefully here. And I want you to bring that reality to your own experience. I want you in your Christian life to know that Jesus was crowned with honor and glory by suffering death, death on the cross. And I want you to bring that to bear, that truth on your own experience. The God who bestowed glory on Jesus is the God who ordained suffering for Jesus. And that's a hard one to get our minds around, isn't it? Let's be honest. This is what I was saying. This is a little bit of affliction. You're going, oh, you ordained it? Yes, you go all the way back to Genesis even. He ordained it, that there would be someone who comes, who crushes the head of the serpent, the liar in the garden that caused first Adam, right, to fall, that sin entered the world. There will be one who comes that crushes his head. God ordained it and planned it. And not only that, but he bestowed on him glory and honor because of the suffering. Now let's bring this personal as Christ followers and disciples. And listen, I know we're wading into deep waters, but we're preaching through Hebrews. So go with me, okay? Romans chapter six, verse five. Let's look at, look at this as disciples. It says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, wait a minute. 
How is he crowned with all authority? How is he crowned with all power and dominion? By suffering death? Disciple, though, it's not just his death, but it's now that we're united with him in his what? His death. So now his death that received honor and glory, we're now united in him and we receive honor and glory because of Christ and through his death. That's the power and the beauty of this. And we have, shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So it's not a death without hope. Right? We want to talk about destiny. We sang the word destiny came up in our songs. And you'll hear a lot of like this destiny talk in churches. Like you just got to walk in your destiny. You got to step into your destiny. You want to know what our destiny is as believers? Can I be honest with you? Your destiny is this. In this life, you will face trials and tribulations. You will face sufferings. But take joy and take heart because you're united with Christ in sufferings and a death like his. That your destiny, right, is not to have the best life now, okay? Your destiny is a future and a hope united with Christ in a resurrection with him. Destination and journey, right? Let's not think that we're going to step and walk into our destiny in this life, Okay? Our destiny is held out as a future hope of reality in Christ that one day we'll be united with him forever. And back to phrase two. Because if this is our destiny, what my eyes see all the time, what my body feels all the time is this struggle and this tension and this wrestling and this warring. But I keep my eyes fixed on the destination. But I also understand how to live faithfully in this current age. Or how about Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5? And this is all over. I could, I, could have, I could have put up here 25 verses about this. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, like it, we share in Christ's death, in his sufferings, but also, so though through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. We are not a people without hope. That in our suffering, in our trials, in our tribulations, in our struggles, whether they're, they're individual or they're corporate or they're cultural, we also, because of Christ, share in his comfort. It overflows to us. You ever experienced that? I hope you have. As a believer, I know you have. You've experienced the, the unexplainable power and comfort of Jesus in your life. Um. Here's the interesting thing uh, about life. That even when I experience things in my life that are not due to my, my sin, meaning um, I've not self-inflicted them on me because of my sin, and all of us experience things like that in life that have nothing to do with our personal sin. Um, we may sin, yes, and things happen, but even when they don't, when sickness comes or the diagnosis or something that happens not based upon our personal sin, I'll be careful in stating that, we can always echo this phrase. I'm better than I deserve as a believer. You ever talk to someone and, and you say, how you doing? Better than I deserve. There is never a moment in our lives as Christ followers, covered by his grace, where we can't say, in suffering, in trial, and tribulation, where we can't say, better than I deserve. Um, you know the person, the only person on the planet who can, cannot say that? better than I deserve? Jesus. Jesus never got better than he deserved. Jesus, in fact, this is the gospel, Jesus, in fact, got that which he did not deserve. He got the very thing you and I deserved. Jesus is the only person on the planet who could ever say, 
could not say, better than I deserved. You see, so the father, he's pointing us to Jesus and he's saying, listen, when you can't make sense of your trial or your trouble or your suffering, I want you to look at Jesus, my son, on whom I bestowed glory and honor, but I did it because and by way of his suffering. So I want you, listen, I want you, Christ follower, I want you, son or daughter, to trust me as you trust in his suffering to save you. I want you to trust in my sovereignty and my control over all things. But then I know what starts welling up in your mind, in my mind. The question that starts welling up in our minds, why? Why is that the route? Why is this the journey? Why, Lord, why are you doing this in my life? Why, why is this pain being afflicted? Why is this trouble or this struggle taking place? Why? Why? You ever ask that? Are you asking that? Like, God, why? What? A global pandemic. Political upheaval. All these things. Rachel, why? What are you doing? Um, Why is a question asked all over the pages of Scripture? Jeremiah 15. um, I thought this was so fitting for us. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, he asks this Why is my pain unceasing? This is a prophet. This is a guy who spoke to the people from God. Why is my pain unceasing? Why is my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail, God? Why, why, why? You ever read the Psalms? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you done this? Why why are you doing this? Job, book in your Bible, Job, the suffering servant. I forget how many times Job asks why, but I know how many times God answers him. Why, why, why? And the response to God is not with an answer, but it's with a verse. And the last phrase, let's look at it in verse 9. Why was it through suffering that Jesus was crowned with glory? Jesus does answer that. He doesn't answer our individual, why this suffering? When will it cease? Why this? Why that? But he does answer the deepest question of why. Why did Jesus have to die? And why was it that route that he was crowned with glory? Here it is. Last phrase, verse 9. So that by the grace of God, he, Jesus, might taste death for everyone. That is the gospel in a nutshell. If you're looking for a a small little verse to sum up the gospel of Jesus Christ, there it is. Why? So that Jesus, the God, very God, put on flesh so that he might taste death so that you and I don't have to. God, why? Why Why all, why this way? So that you don't have to taste death. God, why am I facing this? Why am I struggling with this? Why do I continue to face this tension? Why do I continue to have this? God may never answer the why on those. But what he does is he points you to something far deeper. He points you to someone far deeper who is meeting the very, the the deepest need in your life and my life is not to figure out the why of the struggle and the tension. The deepest need in our life is to figure out, is to figure out why our heart aches and longs for something, something we can't put our fingers on until we understand Christ, until we see Christ fully and completely and hear the fact that he died the death we deserved so that we might have life, 
that you might have life, that we might have life. And then, listen, when we get that perspective, church, we will be able to walk and wade through anything. When that's we know is our destiny is to be united with that God who laid down the life of his son for us so that we could have life, then we'll be able to walk through anything in this life and say, yes, God, it is under your control. It's under your son's control. And we trust you. We trust you because we know you're working all things out for our good and for your glory. How do you know that, Kyle? Because of Jesus. Because our God gave his only begotten son, right? This is John 3, 16, as basic and as fundamental as it gets for believers, but it still must strike us as powerful because that's how we'll walk through this life on the journey to our destiny. Psalm 8, to be joined with Christ, ruling and reigning forever with him in glory. That's your destiny, believer. And that's the hope and the handles we hold on to, to face anything in this life, trials and tribulations, persecutions. That's our comfort. And so we thought it very fitting to celebrate that death this morning. That's exactly what communion is. Right? If, and so this is the only thing we do here at the Park Church that's closed. And what I mean by closed is if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, um, and maybe you're not at that place yet, maybe you would go, hey, I, I want to trust and believe in Jesus Christ. Well, this morning is the morning of salvation. That the words at the end of this passage and the last phrase here, he tasted death so that you don't have to taste death. You would trust in Jesus to forgive your sins. That would be, that would be true for you this morning. You'd take communion for the first time with us. But maybe you'd say, hey, I'm just not at that point we'd ask you to abstain from taking uh, communion. You see, the death of Christ, and yeah, you guys are preparing well. Um, I look forward to the day when we don't have to do COVID communion any longer, but we'll do it. You see, the death of Christ and the salvation we have in his broken body and his shed blood is not just something that changes our eternal destiny, even though it does that, the destination, right? Right? It's something that powerfully and profoundly changes the way in which we live here and now. Because of that destiny, because of that hope, because of that eternity, I live different, correct? I live as a person who understands joy. I live as a person who understands the things of this world. I'm able to interpret the things of this life correctly because of Christ, because of his great salvation for us. And so we celebrate that. It's no wonder Jesus tells us in the scriptures to do this, and every time we do it, do it in remembrance of him, right? Not just to look at the destination, even though we do that, but also to look at the way we live, to examine our hearts and our lives. And so um, the scriptures tell us on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And Jesus said that this broken bread represents my body, broken for you. That body, that death, there was a breaking is a breaking of Jesus, God's very son, the only innocent human that ever lived. His body was broken for you and me so that we might be made whole. A broken people made whole by a broken body, Jesus. And so can we take the broken body together? And in the same manner and fashion, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. 
Jesus was saying, everything that the prophets of old had written about is now fulfilled in me. There's a new way. There's a new way of salvation, and that is through faith and trust in me, Jesus says. And so this represents his blood that was spilled to be that new covenant. This blood that washes us white as snow, this, his blood that forgives us of our sins, past, present, and future. And so we take this cup with a confident hope of our future, but also our reality now. So let's take the cup together. In church, the only fitting response after communion is what? Worship. So stand with me and let's worship God in lifting our voices. Father, I thank you. I thank you for Jesus who you placed in control of everything, every category, every affliction, every success, every triumph is under his control. God, even in our confused states, Lord, you are still sovereign and you are still in control. And it's Jesus who we can be confident and cling to because he tasted death so that we might have life. And so, Lord, even as we just tasted um, stale bread and terrible juice in our lips, Lord, we can be confident that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, that he is the one who took the sting, and we shall be united with him in suffering, but not just in suffering, but in a resurrection like his. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us in our struggles, you would help us in our trials and our tribulations to keep our eyes and the anchor of our hope fixed in Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray for us this week that as things inevitably come, as conflicts and turmoil inevitably come, Lord, I pray that you would help us have the lenses of Christ and lenses of the gospel to see and operate clearly for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.